This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. We have investigative journalist and author George Jarrett here with us tonight. George, thank you so much for meeting us. Thanks for having me. We're honored to have you here for our very first interview. Ashley's with me as well. Hi. <laughs> this was the very first case you covered as a journalist. Yes, I had graduated from Lyon College in Batesville, Arkansas, and I was going to go to law school. And uh, I decided I, in the spring of my senior year in college, I thought I'd take some time off. And so I got a job writing um, at a local newspaper. The editor said that he could uh, let me cover cops and courts, kind of get a feel for the courtroom, stuff like that. He would help me clean up my writing, and then um, I would be on my way to law school. Well, I got uh, about seven months into my uh, career at this uh, newspaper. I got a call from a lady, and she said that her niece was missing. And it was in Melbourne, which was about 20 minute, 20, 25 minute drive from where I, my home office was. So I drove to Melbourne. I get into the sheriff's parking lot, a place I'd visited once a week, every week. And her father was there, a guy named Dr. Larry Gould, and the mother, Shirley, was there, and a couple of her sisters, and the missing woman was Rebecca Gould. And so her mother handed me a missing poster and started telling me how her daughter had been missing at that point for a couple of days, they thought. Um, this was Wednesday, September 22nd, 2004. She had vanished two days prior to that on September 20th. George has brought the poster with us today. He saved it all these years, and it's... You have a lot of notes on the back. Was that stuff her father was telling you about or just everyone at the scene? Everyone at the scene, her sisters, her mother. um. Was that, I mean, like what made them think she was missing? She just wasn't returning phone calls or nobody had seen her? Because, I mean, what was she, 22? Yes. I mean, when I was 22, like I wasn't in contact with everybody all the time. You know what I'm saying? So, like, how long was there? What happened was is that her and her sister were living in Fayetteville with another sister and they had returned to the Mountain View area where they're from um, to visit some friends, boyfriends, things like that. And so um, they had come in on that Friday. So Monday morning, Rebecca was supposed to collect her things. And then she was supposed to go pick her sister up who was in Mountain View. And then they were going to make the return trip home. Well, she never arrived. She was supposed to pick her up around noon or a little thereafter. And so they started calling. And they got no response. And then finally, the next morning, the police did a welfare check at her sort of on-again, off-again boyfriend, Casey McCullough's house. Well, they went and picked Casey up from work, and they went back to his house. Uh, The officer made a run through um, the trailer house that he lived in. They didn't see anything at first. But then on the back porch, they found a little bit of blood. And then when they went back in the house, they opened up the washing machine, and it was full of bloody sheets. And um, they found blood in other spots. Um, it was weird. Her car was there. Her keys were there. Her cell phone was there. All of her personal effects were there. There was cash um, in her uh, wallet. Uh, her dog was there, a little Pomeranian named Lady. And there was also a mixed breed pit bull that was in the house, and they were both unharmed. When I was researching this, I couldn't necessarily find if he did, in fact, have his own dog or not. I couldn't really pinpoint that. So it is confirmed that he did own a dog. Yes, he had a mixed breed pit bull. And was, so the thing that gets me is, so was it an inside dog? Did he have a doggy door? What would make him think he could leave a whole night with a dog inside and not 
take it outside or anything? That's a good question because the night um, that she disappeared, he, uh, you know, Casey's story is that he was at work, that Rebecca drops him off. He's at work all day. And then he goes to Batesville with them to go watch a movie. I think it was Resident Evil when it first came out. And they went to Colton's and ate dinner. And then they went to Walmart and he was seen on camera. Well, the, I guess, I don't know how you would word it. He, to get to Batesville, he'd have to drive right by the road that leads to his house. And his house is only a couple miles down that road. So it had been a very short side trip to go and let his dog out. Now, I don't know if there was a doggy door or not. I'm, I suspect there wasn't. And um, there was a, a report in the Batesville Guard in 2008. Charlie Melton, who was the responding officer, said that when he went in the house, the pets, plural, had messed on the floor. So they hadn't let out. They had No one else had let them out. And whoever killed her, um, the dogs obviously didn't attack them and the dogs were uninjured. So I always think that that's kind of a... I can't just see someone, a stranger, seeing a mixed breed pit bull and assuming they're going to be fine and it's not going to bark. The whole dog thing just really threw a red flag at me because I'm just immediately thinking, why wouldn't he stop and let the dog out? Did he call his father and say, hey, could you stop by my place, let the dog out, feed the dog? Yeah, I mean, so I was thinking, oh, could it be just be an outside dog or outside inside dog? But if he... If it, they had messed in the trailer, mm-hmm. that means it was so inside. He never, he never he, came home. He never came home until the next the next, the next morning. So that was how many hours he had been gone from his mm-hmm. home. And that was kind of an interesting part of this story. And this is something that Casey, I have repeatedly tried to get him to clarify. Okay, so what happened is, is Casey went out with his friends at night. Then they go back to a friend's house and they stay the night. They smoke a little weed. They play some video games. They all fall asleep. Two of the four friends that he was with actually left. So he stays the night. And then his story to me back in 2005 was that he had gone straight from his friend's house to work and that he was at work, found out she was missing, and then he left to go find her. Well, that story, even in 2005, just didn't seem right to me um, because I didn't understand because we're not talking about he had to to travel a, a great distance from his friend's house to get home. And he hadn't gotten a change of clothes. Well, then um, after the Helen God podcast came out in 2018, he had talked to one of uh, Rebecca's sisters and he told her that he actually did go back to the trailer prior to going there with the officer. And he said that he did notice all of her stuff in the house and that the dogs were there and that he um, just went back to work. Now, the interesting part of that is, is also during the Helen God podcast, Two of the guys that he was with that night got their statements back from police. The detective in the case had sent the statements back to both of these guys. And they said in their statements that at one point in that night, Casey was saying that the two, that the girl was missing. And both statements, they both said they were shocked that he wasn't running out the door to try and find her. Mm -hmm. I was wondering that myself. Yeah. And so... um, You know, I can't, this is all I can say about, you know, people could say, well, maybe I misquoted him in 2005. The only thing I'll say to that is this. That's not the kind of thing you're going to misquote someone on. You might misquote a date or a place. There might be a specific fact that's just wrong. Um, But a scenario, that's very difficult to misquote. And he talked to me in 2006 and did not mention it. And I talked to his wife in 2016 and they both said they loved my first book. And that scenario that he 
described to me back in 2005 was in the book. So I don't know what to think about it. Um, I talked when I talked to his wife in 2016. I was trying to get some clarification because Dr. Gould was really um, working hard to try to figure out who killed his daughter. And so um, I called the Sonic in Melbourne where Casey had worked, the place that he was at the day that this happened. Unbelievably, his wife was there. And I'm talking to this person on the phone. And I'm like, does Casey, does anybody have any contact for him? And the woman on the phone's like, no, but his wife is right here. Do you want to talk to her? And I'm like, yeah. So I talked to her for about 10 minutes. It was a pleasant conversation. She had read my first book, um, said he had. She gave me his personal cell phone number. She told me to friend him on Facebook, send him messages. I'm like, okay, great. And mind you, at this time, no one had even, there was no hint of him being a suspect. He'd been a person of interest. The police had interviewed him. I watched the police drag him in for his first interview that Wednesday afternoon, the same day that I was at the sheriff's department. So I call him. I text message him. I leave Facebook messages. I tried to friend him on Facebook. This was in middle of September 2016. To this day, he's never responded to any of those messages. So I had an intuition about it, and I got his wife's cell phone number. I called her back about three days later or so, and she basically hung the phone up on me and said, just leave us alone. We don't want to talk to you. And at this point, I was very confused because I had never written anything. I'd always, uh, you know, I'd never written anything that would be indicate that he had anything to do with this crime. So after that, I started being uh, suspicious about the stories he told me. Mm -hmm. So it seems like he must have gotten upset with her. That's just an assumption that she spoke to you and was. Right. I mean, that's a reason. That's Mm -hmm. a reasonable assumption. Mm -hmm. And then her not. Did she seem awkward, off put that you were talking to her? Did she just seem. She was very. She was very. I could tell her stress level had shot through as soon as she heard my voice. Um, Because I, I think I had talked to her on the hard line at the Sonic. So it wasn't like she saw my number, knew who I was. Right. Um, she just answered it, and it was me. And um, so, and and I have not spoken to her since then. Um, she's she's done, she's messaged a few times on some like social media stuff, uh, vaguely I believe back. But uh, she's basically mostly the McCullough family has stayed silent about this case, and um, I'm not. You know, I don't want to put too much into them not speaking, but. Sometimes what you don't say Correct. says a lot more than what you do say. I think at this point, all the evasion of, you know, people not answering questions, it just seems like it's making the rumor mill go worse. I don't know why he's not wanting to answer some of these questions or why his family members aren't wanting to answer these questions. If it were me and I had been hearing all these rumors about myself constantly, I would all I would want to do is get let people know what I was up to. Right. What X, Y, Z, this, and, I mean, he hasn't really even answered any questions, correct, on things in the trailer. I know he had said that the piano leg was missing. Is that correct? Yes. So he yeah. has confirmed that. But so we, the public, don't even know if they have a murder weapon with them. Um, have they I, released I, that information? I will say this. They've never officially said, uh, as my firm belief, they do not have that piano leg. They do not have the murder weapon. And I'll say this, and my good friend Jennifer Buckholz, I know you followed some of the stuff mm-hmm. that she's oh, yeah. written on this. And her and I, um, you know, she's always pushed back on the piano leg theory um, just because it's an odd weapon. But the, the thing about it is, though, is it was loose. She was struck in the head twice with a blunt object. And here's the thing that I know about a murder scene. Everything there has a purpose. The things that are there and the things that are not there. And if it's not there, there's a reason. And I was also told, I don't know if this is true, and if uh, if it's not, I would be more than happy for anybody in the family to contact me and tell me. 
I heard that after the Helen God podcast came out, they took that piano out and torched it. Really? Yes. I had not heard that. Wow. Because that's one thing. I grew up with a piano in my house, but it wasn't the kind with legs. It was the kind that goes all the way to the bottom. So in my mind, I'm thinking, what is it, what type of piano is it? What would a piano leg look like? I was Googling images and I... And like all that's going through my head is, why is there a piano in a trailer <laughs> in Desert County? <laughs> uh, Casey was a musician. He, okay. he plays guitar. He played piano. Um, he uh, was proud of his piano that somebody had given to him. He said there were keys on it that were broken. Um, in fact, I, I can tell you an interesting story. About a month before um, the murders, or, or a month or so, Danielle, uh, Rebecca's youngest sister, told me that she was at Casey's trailer and that he pulled that piano leg off to show both of them how easily the piano leg would come off. And he swung it around in the air. And so the thing about it is, is if that's the murder weapon, and it very well could be, Whoever killed her had to know that that piano leg would, would come right. loose because you're not just going to walk into a house. It's like we're sitting here and there's a table. Yeah, you're not going to unscrew that. You're going to go in the kitchen and get a knife. You're not going to. That's exactly gonna, right. Yeah, or you're going to have a gun on you or something else. Right. Most murderers, they bring their murder weapon. Right, with them. exactly. To me, it just, the whole thing screams crime of passion. Something happened. Grab the first thing you see or think of. And if that was the piano leg. And here's the thing that I've got the autopsy report. There's only a couple copies of it out there. And according to the autopsy report, her radiological scans showed no bone bruising anywhere. And and she was a small girl. She was about 5'1", 5'2", weighed 100 pounds. So what that means is that if you're violently attacked by someone, you're going to have bone bruising. There's going to be evidence that you were physically um, assaulted. And so the only damage to her body were two blows to the head. And then um, I made what I thought's an interesting observation. It may not be, um, but I know that she was struck in one part of the house and then moved to the bed. So you have she to. She was not sexually assaulted. No, um, when her body was found, um, she was she was wearing a t-shirt and panties. There was no semen recovered. Um, there were no, um, and there's always other signs of sexual assault. Like for instance, and I hate to be graphic, but like her breasts were totally normal for that range of decomposition there were no bite marks to them you know normally when a woman's sexually assaulted there's there's very strong evidence of it and even in the autopsy report they said we can't conclusively rule it out but there it even says there would be other signs and a rapist is not going to put her undergarments back on her Mm -hmm. and that's what she commonly took naps in as well so it wasn't that unusual that she would be wearing that in someone's house that she felt comfortable in that's rebecca Her, her her exact words you know, they found a breakfast sandwich in the house. They found coffee in the microwave. She was folding up her clothes, getting ready to go back to college. The whole scene, her sister said, this was Rebecca. This is exactly how I could see her. So she never, so you said the last person that she was last seen at a gas station? Yes. That morning? So yes. did she get up and go get a breakfast sandwich, coffee? Yes. Come back, start getting her things ready to go. So then she would have had to put pants on. To go out, you know, I'll I'll say this, and I would I, hope so. Anyway, <laughs> I've written about this some. Okay, first off, firsthand accounts, like people giving accounts, sometimes can be very unreliable. People get days mixed up, and you would be shocked how you would think. Okay, I heard, I saw something three or four days ago. You think, okay, I can remember that, 
Well, I can point, there's a glaring example in this case. In one of the witness statements from one of the guys that Casey was with that night, in the first part of his statement, he said he went up to the Sonic the Sunday before and said that he went and picked up a paycheck. Well, then at the end of the statement, he goes, wait a minute, I don't think I went back there at all. Well, he made that statement to police on Wednesday. So just in the span of three days, he had completely forgotten whether he had gone to his own place of work on the Sunday or not. So some of those witness statements about seeing her, I'm not saying that the the clerk was wrong, but, you know, I will say this. Is it possible she mixed up a day? That's very possible. And I will say this, too. So there is no there's no actual evidence that Rebecca dropped him off at work. See, we think we know something, but we may not really know it. One of the witnesses at Sonic said they thought they saw her car pull up and him get out. That doesn't mean it was Rebecca's car. That doesn't mean Rebecca was driving, even if it was her car. So we don't know any of this stuff. This is all vague. And so we think we know, but we don't. They said it was in the morning, so she could have picked that up. She'd taken it back. We know she at least got to the trailer. Wanted to take a nap before the trip? I don't know. That would have been a very common habit for her to take a nap before she went on a trip. And I'll say this too. The time of death, we don't have an accurate picture of when she died. We have a window. And the window could be from 12 to 24 hours based on the insect activity in her body. And and my friend Jennifer uh, is the one who um, was able to do that analysis or come up with it. And so her and I have gone back and forth about this a lot about, okay, what's the window we're looking at? So your window could be from Sunday afternoon all the way to Monday afternoon. That's the window. So when I see this, I'm thinking you either have, you leave everything behind, all the bloody sheets, this and that. But why would someone do a half-assed job, no other way to put it, of cleaning a murder scene? They didn't clean it all the way. They did a terrible job. Why? I mean, I just feel like why not... Leave it all there. Why do anything at all? I just can't understand that. There, okay, so this is what you have to ask yourself in this case. Who would remove her body from that house? That is the most titanic decision the killer made after killing her. Because moving a body is the most dangerous thing you can possibly do. If the killer wanted to destroy evidence, why didn't he just take a match and burn the house to the ground? Because the only reason you're washing the sheets is to get rid of evidence. The only reason you're wiping up the blood is to get rid of evidence. So why did they move her body? And why did, in fact, why didn't they leave her body in the house and then just take a match and torch it? I mean, if you're going to do something like that, I don't understand moving her body in the first place, especially if you're not a friend of hers or someone close. If it's just a random act of violence, why would you leave? Why would you take her body, dump her, wash some sheets, there are bloody pillows under the bed. See, and, and that, that detail, and you know, you were talking about being a dog person, mm-hmm. and I get that. The the dog thing really bothered me for a long time. I really honed in on that, when I, especially when I found there was another dog there, a mixed breed pit bull, because I'm a journalist. So I've written a lot about dogs attacking people. Right. And almost always when there's a dog attack that where a person is seriously injured, you'll see in the newspaper, it'll say pit bull. Most of the time, it's actually a mixed breed pit bull. And they've done some research into that. To where, you know, sometimes when you mix breed a pit bull, that's where the problem is. So to think that you could go into a house, the the dogs had to know the person who killed her. They had to. Because, I ha- you know, everybody's had dogs. You, your dog's loyal. There, there's no dog going to let you get beat to death in front of them and them just sit there. And they'll intervene to the point where you have to injure them too. Or when 
th- and this is another aspect of it. So when her body's being dragged out of the house, would you, would your dog follow you? Oh, of course. Your dog would walk right out the door. He would try to fo- keep going where I was going. Right. And w- just the killer put the dogs back in the house. Why not just let them run outside? Why would you care? Yeah. Why would you care? I never thought of that aspect that they were in the house. Obviously, that door had to have been open at least long enough. Even someone strong dragging a body, a lifeless body, you have all that weight. That's going to take a few minutes. And see, Lacey, that's that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize. Um, When a person is dead, handling a body like that is a whole different animal than even handling someone who's breathing and alive. Even though she only had 100 pounds, it would have been very difficult to move her. And so um, you got to take all these factors into account when you're thinking about, okay, who did this and why? Or, and I I don't, the police have never officially confirmed this, but I know it's true. She had a um, a suitcase that, it was a big suitcase with wheels. And you could probably stuff most of her. She might have had an arm or a leg hanging out of the suitcase, but it's got wheels and it can move. Like you could move it. So I, th- again, back to the, the original. Did they find that? Did they find the suitcase? I don't know. They've never said yes or no, um, but it was definitely missing out of the house. And so if it's missing, there's a reason. Gotcha. Everything in a crime scene has a purpose, whether it's there or it's not. And they've been tight-lipped this whole time. We don't know what evidence they do or do not have, correct? That's correct. Um, I've been told through some... Uh, you know, off the record conversations I've had with certain people that actually a lot of the case file has a lot of facts in the case file have been divulged to the public um, surreptitiously through the years. Um, So we've got a pretty good understanding of what's going on. I mean, I still haven't been able to figure out why the detective, the, uh, the former detective in the case released witness statements back to the witnesses. Right. Because that's that's strange. That's not normal. You would want to at least get a new account, right? You wouldn't want to send yes. the same one back because wouldn't that remind them of what they already said or trigger up false memories or yes. that just seems strange. Yeah. And I've actually talked to some law enforcement friends of mine across the state and I can't find one that could find, could give me a valid or good reason to do that because you would want to compare the now statement to the then statement and, um, you know, basically, I was told that he told them that he gave them their statements back to freshen their memory. Well, what value, if you've already got a statement from them? What's the point? What's the point? Exactly. So how big was the, was her boyfriend? I'm going back to the how he moved her body. How, what, what was his size? You said she's like 5'2", 100 pounds. Yeah, he's he's probably an average size guy, kind of skinny. Um, I know he climbed towers for a long time, so he's probably pretty strong. Like, Strong. Yeah, 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 something like that, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, and here's he wasn't the, like six six and like two eighty or anything. No, like he that. wasn't. No, he was like guy. a big guy. Yeah, no, okay. he's not big like that. Um, and also, you got to remember something too. In the moment of adrenaline rush, you're able to do things quicker, true. faster. Your mind moves quicker. Right. You're you're just stronger. If you have to do something, you you're going to get it done. Yes, that's that's a good point. So, what do you think has made this? go unsolved for all these years it to me first glance this seems like an obvious open and shut case i think that there's a possibility and i don't know this and i don't want to cast dispersions on anyone but i think there's a possibility that um some people in law enforcement kind of had blinders in this case 
that they had developed a theory, and there may be some evidence to support their theory that we're unaware of. Um, but it's kind of plain and obvious. I've talked to like a lot of like law enforcement experts around the country, and every single one of them has come to the, basically the same conclusion. And it's not even, it's not a question. I mean, their only question is, is why isn't this solved? Because this right. is a very solvable case. And actually, I think some people at the state police level are starting to recognize that too. And that's why we've got a new detective, which I will say this, from everything I've heard, and you know, I don't always talk about everything I hear, from everything I've heard to this point, he's taking this case very seriously right. and he's doing what I would consider a very thorough job of going back through the evidence and um, re-interviewing witnesses and taking this seriously. Um, and not to say that the other detectives weren't. I mean, being a detective is like being a journalist or like being in any other part of your life. You may be great the first 99 times you do something. And then the 100th time you might just, it, it just doesn't work out. You're not, you, you don't do it as well. And so I, I give him a pass for that. But there comes a moment where you have to go back to the simple boned fact of this case and the simple facts lead in one stark direction i would think after 16 years it's time to do something different you know it's time to interview more people release some information i can't understand how they could go 16 years and not release her father's never been a suspect correct so why why not give him any of this information let them know what they have and even her sister she knew their friends everything like that i feel like they would want to ask questions to compare that with them. I don't know why they didn't do any of that. I'll be fair to them. They may have done some of that. It's possible that they did some, but we don't know because we've never seen the case files. So they can't prove, it can't be proved or disproved about how thorough this investigation was. All we know is this is 16 years later, no one's gone to jail for the murder of Rebecca Gould. And no one has been even arrested and, no one's even been named an official suspect, right. which again, there's some nomenclature there, a person of interest, suspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are numbers that there are names that we, we enter. These are, these are names that the media uses. Um, Casey has been interviewed as a suspect in this case. And it's obvious why he would be a suspect. Right. He's a love interest. She literally slept in his bed the night before she died. So, and that would be, now that doesn't mean he's guilty. That doesn't mean he did it, but he would be the number one suspect. And FBI statistics of a woman will prove when a woman, her demographic, is murdered. It's by a boyfriend or a husband. The husband did it. <laughs> Do you know if there were any comforters or quilts or anything like that on his bed? Were, was it just sheets in the wash? It was. It, we know there were sheets or bedding, were the words used, in the washing machine. Now, there's some question as to whether there were like rags or towels in the, in the dryer. Um, we, some of these details have never been completely confirmed by police. So it's hard to, to figure out what's true and what's not. Um, I will say that I, I think it's very interesting that the murderer decided to stuff bloody pillows under the bed and flip the bed. If you go into my bedroom, you take the sheets off my bed, you flip the bed and you put bloody pillows underneath my bed. How long is it going to take me or you or you or anyone to figure this out? A moment of seconds. And I'm guessing they weren't a bunch of decorative throw pillows. They were probably the pillows they needed to sleep on at night. So right. you're going to need the pillows where, you know, that's. Was the dog not going to smell it and get it? And pull? I mean, no, do, do dogs not? Well, here's the. Dog, so. <laughs> they, I would think I would they think would get into like that. Smelling if, okay. It and if, like... 
if the dog was roaming? What if the dog had been put into another bedroom with the door shut? That's very good. And do we know that if they were found in it? A- we don't know. Uh, the uh, the responding officer, he won't talk about. And, and again, there could be some good reason for that. Um, because the case, they are re, they're re, um, they are restarting this case, basically. And there's a term called holdback. And what police do is they will hold back certain details from the crime because only the perpetrator would know those details. And so when they interview him, they want to get a... Uh, if he if he knows things that the that no one in the public knows, then they know. Okay, this guy's legit. He's giving us legit information. You think it's possible for more than one person to be involved? Yes, you do think so. Okay, I was curious because I feel like maybe that could explain. Maybe someone moved her body. Someone was quickly cleaning, doing a bad job. Because I feel like two people weren't cleaning. Right. That's just my my gut telling me that. I have no basis for that, but. Since it wasn't such a good job, I feel like someone was doing that maybe while someone could have been transporting the body. But I think it's highly probable there was someone else involved. Mm. And the other person involved may may be simple, may have just been assisting the murderer, moving the body and cleaning the stuff up. Um, But yes, I, I really do think someone else was involved. And my my initial inclination when I started this was I thought that it was two females. Mm-hmm. And I've completely flipped on that now. I don't think it was two females. I think it was two males. And there's a reason why I changed my opinion about it. And I want to make sure people understand. Because in journalism, it's not like you're flip-flopping. It's if you're given new information, then you have to take that information, right. put it into the matrix, and then see what comes out. So what happened is, in 2016, I wrote a book about the West Memphis 3 case. And so I um, included a chapter about Rebecca's case. Well, that caused me to reconnect with her father. Well, while we were reconnecting, he and I and one of his private investigators started going over the autopsy report with a fine-tooth comb. And then all of a sudden, we realized she wasn't attacked viciously. She was she was struck in the head one to two times. She wasn't sexually assaulted. And there were no indications that there... Now, there were blood in spots in the house. But got to remember something. That could simply be because there was blood that that got spread while she was being transported or being moved from the initial spot where she got hit to the bed. So there being blood in a few spots is fine. She there was a story that emerged where she was dragged, kicking and screaming, and these people were just beating her to death. That didn't happen. Okay, that's a story. It's a story that gets made up in small town. It didn't happen that way. The autopsy report doesn't support it. So I definitely think it was two males. Now I feel like you would have to have a lot of force. I don't think. I, I mean, she was smaller than I am. I don't think I could hit someone in the head even twice. I know on TV it looks like it's easy to hit someone in the head and they die, but I know that's not true. I don't even think I could hit someone in the head and kill them. I just, I don't, I mean, I'm not strong enough good, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but like, is there, has any, like, I feel like it would have to be like a, a an anger response. You see what I'm saying? It was like, rage. Oh, like, rage. It, yeah, yeah, yeah for rage. sure, like, rage. You would have to be, like, in a blind rage. Too. Yeah, I guess. But I feel like, as a female, you would have to put your arm, I don't know, just oh, you would have to really far back. Yeah, Almost and, time for someone else to, and there's another, like, it would look like a fight, maybe. Yeah, gotcha. exactly. You know? And here's the thing. If it was a female, and there was a female suspect in this case for a while, who was interviewed several times, who had a potential motive, okay. Here's the problem. If Rebecca saw her, she's going to defend herself. She would have 
defensive wounds to her hands. And if you're, you're talking about somebody who's hitting you with enough force to kill you in two blows, if they're using that force to swing at you, they're going to break fingers when she sticks her hand up to try to stop the blow. It's going to break your hand. There's going to be bone bruising. So there's none of that. She never defended herself. It was as if she turned her back to her killer after saying something, and the killer got so enraged by what she said that they grabbed the weapon, and then as she was turning back around to look at him, they hit her. In, and I, I'm not going to go into a very detailed explanation of how she was hit, um, not because I don't want your listeners to know. It's because my friend Jennifer could explain this so much oh, better yeah, than I could. Oh, yeah, I read her synopsis on that and saw that she provided photos. I can We can even link those yes. for our listeners. And but... she determined, and she is very good at her job, she determined that the person who hit Rebecca had to be several inches tall, right, indicating that it was a male. And was the female suspect, do we know her height in comparison to Rebecca? Um, she's probably an inch or two taller, um, I think. I would have to go back and look. But not an extreme No, difference. we're not talking about a stream. Yeah. We're, it, it is clearly obvious that a male was the person who struck her. And also, a thing I just, I just thought about this. So she turned her back to the killer for a moment, we're assuming, since there weren't any defensive things. So she trusted whoever was there. Meaning that she probably wasn't having a fight with a female friend, right? right. That's right. just now kind of coming to my mind. So it's like she's getting ready to go back to college. She's, who knows, folding her clothes, whatever she says, maybe something that sets someone off and she's continuing what she's doing. They pick something up and hit it. I would think if it was anyone else, it, it would be a fight. Right. It's almost as if she said something to the killer. Yeah pissed him off and that she just laughed and mocked him. She turned around and in a fit of rage, he grabs the piano leg, hits her twice. She hits the ground. Someone else is in the house. Another male comes in and they're like staring at her, not knowing what to do. She's bleeding on the ground. So they have to pick her up. They put her on the bed, hoping that maybe she'll get better within moments. They realize she's not going to get better. And then this is the part that we can never know for sure because of her the advanced decomposition of her body was she smothered mm. with those pillows that were ended up being oh, stuffed under the bed. that's a good point. Yeah, because it, here's the thing. It doesn't make any sense. From her injuries, she was either unconscious or semi-conscious at that point. She's not going to crawl to the bed. She's not no, going to climb up on, on top of it. No. no. So there's no way to tell if when they hit her that when she she didn't die initially. Okay. She did not okay. die from she she may have died within minutes. The internal it's hard to tell the hemorrhaging. And this is actually very um I mean it's a disgusting detail, but her brain was completely gone when they found her body. I mean it had been right. decomposed. Yeah. So they can't there's no way to tell the hemorrhaging that took place. Um, but it would have killed her without treatment. And the fact that there are bloody pillows, remember there's 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 things that they tell you yes. that they pillows. don't even know they're telling you. And so how in the world did she bleed on two pillows and get on the bed? I know for a fact she was struck in another part of the house. I've been told that. I was told that for years. And so how did she get there? So the killer picked her up and put her on the bed. And carried her all the way through the house to the bed? Uh, I think that she was probably struck in close vicinity to the bedroom. But yes, picked her up, carried her in there. Who would do that? That's something I hadn't thought about before because... We know she wasn't sleeping when she was struck. See, and I had a theory that she was for a long time. That was my first thought when I was first digging into this. Like, oh, okay, well, she no defensive wounds. She's asleep. But then... And she's also on the 
bit. Right. But so. the, uh, is it the autopsy? Yeah, the yes. autopsy shows how she was hit and it would be basically impossible for her to yes. be on well, the Well, actually what it is, it was Jennifer's analysis oh, right. of yes. it. And Jennifer, um, she talked, I believe she talked to like an ER nurse mm-hmm. about wound patterns. Jennifer's very thorough. Um, her and her husband spent an entire weekend going over blow scenarios with different objects. And that's all. He's an engineer. He's brilliant, too. And she even came to Arkansas. She had never been to Arkansas in her life until February of 2019. And she came to meet with Dr. Gould. She spent a whole week of her vacation wow, just coming to Arkansas, retracing the route where the killer took her body and all this other stuff. I mean, you're talking about a woman who the State Department hires and sends to other countries to train police forces. I mean, that's... That's incredible. Yeah, she's contacted me from countries I won't divulge, but she's been gone for months at a time. Yes. Based on what I've read, she seems extremely intelligent and knowledgeable about everything. Do you know how she found out about this case? What made her interested in the first place? I believe a coworker, maybe one of her bosses, introduced her to the Helen Gone podcast. And she binged, listened to it. And then um, she got in contact with me shortly after that. And then her and I just started um, going down the path on this case. And um, her work has been brilliant. I really feel sorry for whoever killed Rebecca Gould because Jennifer Buckholtz, she will, she's going to find you out. Oh, I can tell. She's not, doesn't and, seem to be giving up any time soon. And I will be there laughing with her when they get caught. Do you think even if the object that was used to kill her was found, if that would change anything? Because, I mean, let's... I heard rumors of it was uh, the piano leg was thrown into the White River. Yes. I mean, let's say they found the piano leg tomorrow. Do you think there's any, there's other than just confirming it's a piano, that's the piano leg from the house. And it would be hard to do that now since the uh, piano has been torched. Yes. Um, so it would be really, I don't, it, the thing about a blunt force object, it's hard if you don't, if you don't find it initially. Um you might find some fingerprints on it, but there again, and there's another, I want to get into this a little bit. Okay. There's things that you know, and there's things, there's things that are known. And then there's the absence of other things that tells us things that haven't been told to us, but we know they are true. And I'm going to give an example. So there've been four or five suspects in this case that have been interviewed. There's been lots of people interviewed. Okay. Well, what we can infer from what's happened is that none of those suspects' fingerprints were found in the house. None of their DNA was found at the house. All of these people who've been interviewed, and you, and I'm sure people who listen to your podcast will follow up on this story, and you'll see all the names. I don't have to go into all the people who've been questioned. Okay, none of their evidence has ever been found in the house. So how is it that you can go to a, a washing machine, put all this stuff in there, and not leave fingerprints? Well, here's the thing. So let's say you go into my house, and you murder me, and you decide you're going to wash stuff and put it into um, the washing machine. Well, if you wipe it down, you'll find no prints. If you don't wipe it down, you're going to find their prints and my prints. So the question is, is if they fingerprinted the washing machine, I'm sure they found all the prints from the people who live there and the killers, unless it was wiped down. It could be. No, that's a possibility. I mean, there may be blood on that washing machine. I feel like you're that smart. You know, that's the, that's the funny thing is that, yeah, I mean, you it's smart at the end, right? It's like, you're a genius for one little right. like aspect or you're like, okay, this is a great analogy. So you're a world-class runner running a marathon. And for like two miles of it, you're running at that pace. 
and then after that, you're running like you're 600 pounds. I mean, seriously? Mm-hmm. I mean, and here's the other thing. We know this wasn't a planned crime because her body was found on the side of the road. And here's the thing. Where she was found, it's at the very end of this ancient gravel road because the killer had no other place to go. He was at the end of the road before he was about to go back up on Highway 9 on a major thoroughfare where there would be cars. He left her out in the open. If this was a planned crime, there would be a hole dug, and oh, she would sure. and she would have been gone, and all of her stuff would have been gone. It would have been planned. You never would have found her. And it's almost like the killer must have panicked, because if you grow up in that area, you know 5,000 dirt roads to go down yes. that are secluded or more secluded, you know what yes. I mean, or more secluded or dead ends, or somebody's got property, or there's a, you, you know what I'm saying? Yes. So, how far was that road she was dropped off at, essentially, from where he lived? Was it very far? Was it? It's probably in it. Traveling roads like that sometimes hard to give actual miles. Um, it was probably five to six miles, maybe. I'm not sure. I've never actually gauged right. it with an odometer. Um, but there's an interesting phenomenon with murderers when they kill somebody and they're going to move the body. They usually don't give. Two, that ten miles is about as far as they get. Right. Because, Wouldn't want to go much further. Yeah, there's a psychological barrier where they're like, okay, I'm far enough, but I can't go any further because I'm going to get caught. So, and I was told that one time by a friend of mine who worked in the FBI, and I was like, that can't be right. So then I went back and started looking at the murder cases that I had covered through the years, and sure enough, most of the bodies were found within ten miles where they were last seen, unless they were dumped in a river or something like that that would move them down the river. But even those. Most of the time, they get hung up just a few miles down the river. So it does seem very ironic that the most incriminating thing that you could have removed from the house is her body. All the other stuff is left. When the police respond, they're going to know that's the last place she was before she died. They left her body on the side of the road. It's only a matter of time. In fact, it is astonishing that it took a week to find her. It should have taken maybe a day. I mean, you could have walked along that road and looked down to where her body was found and saw her. So you were out there while they were looking yes. for her. How close did it come naturally before they got the hint from a neighbor that they'd smelled or they saw buzzards, correct, flying yes. nearby and they thought that there might be something over there? What happened was, and I knew about this for a long time and I didn't talk about it, um, they got a call from a woman who lived in that general vicinity. There had been a smell of some odor of some kind and she had seen buzzards. And so they knew to they were going to ch- check that area. I think the call came in maybe Sunday. So they decided Monday morning they were going to send responders out there to walk the road. Within minutes of within minutes of them walking the road, they came upon her body. Wow! And she was very decomposed, very rotted. Um, I hate to say that it was very mm-hmm. disgusting. And um, so they found her body. Um, actually, there wasn't a really horrible smell. It was weird. And this is the thing I always tell people about like going on scenes like that, especially when you're not prepared for it. You don't know how your senses are going to react. You can imagine you smell something that you don't smell. You can imagine things are happening. It's a very surreal experience. Um, so, but she really, when they moved her body is when it really got bad. They had to bring in the, a lab from Little Rock to pick her up. And, you know, and I always tell people this, I always want to make sure, especially for killers listening, um, I want him to remember one thing is that when they took her body down to Little Rock and they opened the body bag up, 
they took her body out and then they reached in and grabbed her hair because it had rotted off her head. Yeah, and anybody Sorry. defending him, I want them to remember that too. I mean, I actually interviewed the guy several times who found her body and he was haunted by it for many, many years. So if someone did help with the murder and they weren't, so it kind of seems like someone did it, not planning it out, and someone maybe happened to be there or maybe was called after the fact, what would be there? Are they just afraid to come forward, fear of being put in prison or fear of the person that killed Rebecca? Well, there could be a couple of things. They, they could be afraid of being charged as a conspirator in the crime. Okay, that's fair. Um, they could be afraid of the person who actually did it. And that's a real thing. I've covered cases where that's the case. Um, or it could be they're related to the killer. That's a good point. And so they don't want to They out. want to protect this person. Right. That makes sense. I feel like that would make more sense than a friend from high school. Or, right. I mean, time goes by. Your, your friends, but what, at the end of the day... Right. You're not... You're going to very rarely in life find a friend that's going to keep a yes. deadly secret like this forever. Right. Because I would even think as things heat up, even now, that that person would be thinking, I got to get this off my chest. Maybe I'll get a lesser sentence or a lesser punishment. I and know. I will say this, anybody listening to this, um, I know that the killer and his accomplice have told other people. They're out there. Mm -hmm. Some of them have contacted me. And there are more. And those people need to go to the police right now. Did these people call the police and report any of this? Or did they just let you know? Are they afraid to go to the police? Well, I think that there's there's been a phenomenon in this case where some people have gone to the police and they weren't believed. Okay. And so, um, but maybe I'm hoping that's changed. um, Because I have had several people contact me through the years about this case. And, um, I mean, some of the things they've told me are, have never been divulged publicly and they exactly match the evidence in the case. Yeah. I had just started seeing some things that someone got drunk at a party and rambled off a bit too much. And sometimes they might not have been drinking and they said these things. And my question is, who are they telling this to? They'd have to be friends, right? Right. Or, Family members, but I feel like the family members would not be wanting to contact you right? unless they were removed from the situation at hand. So, yeah, I mean, and this is the thing, like, and I want to make this perfectly clear. The person who should be most invested in getting this case solved is Casey McCullough. If he's innocent, then he wants this solved so that people will quit tarnishing his name. Absolutely. So... If it were me, if you were out, if people were out saying these things about me, I would be doing, I would be moving heaven and earth to get this case solved. Besides the fact Mm -hmm. she was his friend. They dated. I mean, how many people wouldn't want their friend's murder to get solved? I would want to be on every talk show, TV show, anyone that would listen that I had nothing to do with this. What questions do you have for me? I'm going to answer them. I just... I feel like not by not answering all these questions, it's not a good look at all. It just makes it seem more suspicious. And you know, and the funny thing is, is that when you're telling the truth, you can tell the truth over and over again. Mm -hmm. When you're telling lies, that's when you have problems because you don't know which lie you told the last time. I just have a thousand questions even now still. Has anything changed your mind since you wrote your last book? I don't want to tell people. I want them to read it themselves. But has anything came to light that you've shifted opinions on? 
plenty of things have come to light since my third book, Whispers in the Willows, came out. Nothing has changed my mind. Okay. In that's fact, if know. anything, it just keeps validating right. over and over again. And that's the funny thing. Like, I covered West Memphis 3 for a long time. And um, there was a suspect in that case that just kept, everything kept pointing to the same suspect over and over and over again. And every time a new piece of evidence was developed, it just pointed back at him. And in this case, the same phenomenon keeps happening. Every time something happens, it isn't a witness coming up saying, oh, wait a minute, that person didn't do it. It's always, yeah, he did it, and this is how. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, well, at some point, there has to be something pointing in another direction. Do you think it's just because they didn't have a murder weapon? Why not convict? I just, are there any ties to police? Okay, now there's a couple of things, like the rumor mill always gets started on cases like this. Um, and I've had to shoot down a bunch. Um, like, you know, they're like the McCullough family does have some connections to law enforcement. I don't think that has anything to do with this, honestly. Um, there were some there were some rumors going around about the former sheriff, Joe Martz, that he had some connection to Rebecca and that. Well, and I, I immediately shot that down because if he had some connection, if he was involved in this, number one, he's a police, he's a sheriff. He the police are not just going to leave her body on the side of the road if there was some horrible conspiracy. And the other thing is, is he immediately turned the investigation over to another agency, which he Very did true. not have to do. Yeah, so true. I shot all that down. I said, that's bogus. That's a bunch of garbage. Didn't, you know. And so, you know, you and I talked before we started um, uh, taping a few minutes ago. Occam's razor. Mm-hmm. The simplest, start with the simplest explanation and work your way out. If you can, if you can dismiss the easiest explanation, right. then move on to the more complicated ones. Well, the easiest explanation right now is that a love interest killed Rebecca Correct. Gould. That's it. I mean, there's no other. Um, and it's a love interest who is very, very familiar with the McCullough home. Mm-hmm. Someone who knows about the loose piano legs. Someone who's familiar with the dogs. Someone who felt comfortable washing clothing and sheets in the house. Someone who didn't feel like they were going to get disturbed. Correct. No, they didn't think anyone was going to come home and find them doing yes. any of that. And they hid the bloody pillows under the bed. They flipped another person's mattress. And then they removed her body and then most likely came back. So there's so much time there. You would think, where's Casey? Is he going to know I'm here? Ask yourself this question. Who fits all that criteria? Correct. That's all all I have to ask. (laughs) I just really hope this new investigator cracks into this even further and... From what I'm told, he's been very voracious and aggressive with his investigation. That is good because the most obvious thing is what's been going on for 16 years has not been solving the case. It's time for them to try something else. And we can start wrapping this up. I did want to ask you, so what could our listeners and the general public do to help a case like this get the justice it deserves for hers and for others like this? I can say this. Um, and I've had this conversation with Dr. Gould a lot. Public attention helps. Mm-hmm. The West Memphis Three would still be in prison right now. Damien Eccles probably would have been executed right now right. had it not been for a documentary. Wow. And so if that documentary doesn't get made, he probably isn't alive right now. So in a case like this that's unsolved, the best thing that we can do is to keep this in the public sphere. And what I mean by that is, is like you guys are doing a podcast. That's great. People need to listen to podcasts. Uh, they can join Facebook. They can join our, uh, we have a group, um, The Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of discussions on there. 
I'm quickly tell- getting obsessed with reading everything in that group. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely recommend people to join that. And here's the thing. I got tipped off to a very vital piece of information when Helen Gotten came out. A person that I did not know wow. who was connected to this case anonymously contacted me and gave me a very powerful piece of information, which the police have. If Helen Gotten had to come out, that detail never would have came to the surface. The woman didn't even realize mm-hmm. that she had this information, had no idea. And so I would encourage people you know, who live in the Melbourne area, who live in the Searcy area, people who live around Mount Pleasant. Mm-hmm. There are people who know things out there who need to come forward Absolutely. and talk. Because I know that these two guys told other people. Oh, I know absolutely. they did. Especially the accomplice who didn't yes. do the murder but was assisting. I just, one thing I I know is from all the ID I've watched is people have a very difficult time keeping stuff to themselves. Their they can't whole lives. do it. They can't do it. They have to tell someone else. Human nature. And two people. If I was that um, accomplice, I would go to the police right now. Absolutely. Just go and get it over with because it's it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's an inevitable tide. And I will be telling the listeners about the um, the tip email address that's yes. totally confidential. It goes to Jennifer, correct? Yes, it does. And she strips the names out before sending to the Arkansas State Police. So whatever information people send in, they don't have to worry about She is that. so good not. about keeping pe- mm-hmm. people's information confidential. There are things, and we're great friends, <laughs> but we had an agreement at the beginning. She Sometimes people are going to call her and tell her things that they don't want me to know, and right, that's fine. right. Whatever The helps. same thing happens to me. I get calls and they're like, don't tell anybody. You're the only person I'm telling. So but so she is very good in that regard. Oh. And there's a $50,000 reward. Right. I saw that that just recently got doubled. Yes. So that was my next question. If somebody wants to remain anonymous, do they still get the reward? Obviously, if there's an arrest and a conviction. Um, is it only if there's a conviction? Um, I think it's if there's an arrest. I'm not sure. That actually is probably... It probably would be tied to a conviction because people get arrested for crimes that are committed all the time. That's correct. Um, but I, I actually know the person who's donating the money, and I'm pretty sure this person would just uh, this person that this person has no problem giving whatever. Helps and then you also don't want a witch hunt like so and so did it just so they get if there or even if it's someone that they told could they like if hypothetically speaking if I did something I told you. You kept it a secret for 16 mm-hmm. plus years, and then you went because you wanted this reward money. Uh, well, here's Could the she be charged here, here, with something? Here's the thing. Technically, maybe. It depends on what you were told. It depends on the information you have. Um, what A lot of times what they can do is they will grant immunity. They'll say, okay, I want Lacey's testimony. So in order to get it, she's not going to testify in court truthfully unless I say, hey, she's not going to get convicted of a crime. So they grant her immunity, and then she testifies, and then um, that's kind of how that process can work. And I'm pretty sure, you know, if anybody's listening, I'm sure the prosecutor would love to get this case solved Mm -hmm. and would probably love to give somebody immunity who knows exactly how it went down. Absolutely. I mean, after all these years, they need all the tips they can get, even if someone thinks it has might not help at all. It's worth trying. Maybe it was hearsay at a party through it. Some a friend of a friend of a friend that could still help. Anything right. could help, really. Well, we both want to thank you so much for driving down to visit us, and thank you for your hard work. Thank you for helping bring justice 
for Rebecca's family. And we're hoping that eventually we can do an update episode where there's justice. The killer's been arrested and their family, her family has some some peace, some justice at least. Can't wait. I'll be in that courtroom sitting next to Dr. Gould. And then you'll come back and sit here. <laughs> I will. I will. For sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Please be sure to follow our Instagram at United States of Murder and Facebook at US of M Podcast for all the recent updates. And please be sure to subscribe on Apple. Thanks for listening.